You haven't heard about Blippi? I haven't heard about Blippi. Okay, so Blippi is a children's entertainer. He is like if Pee Wee Herman had like no edge, just no edge to him at all. <laughs> what? Like, he had never been to art school and was just he, he's like a he's like a boring birthday clown, except he's got like <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, and what makes it worse is he got like forty million subscribers on YouTube. He makes millions and millions of dollars. He's insanely rich off like really low efforts children's TV, and um. It turned out, like BuzzFeed uh, looked into this dude's background, and it turns out that before he was a children's entertainer on YouTube, he was like a shock guy called Skeezy Grossman. His name's like Steve Grossman or something in real life. And uh, he tried to get famous during the, um, what's it called, uh, Harlem Shake. Do you remember the, the Harlem Shake? from back in the day i do remember the harlem shake yes yeah so he did a version of the harlem shake where he uh farted diarrhea into his friend's asshole <laughs> um, what what what? <laughs> what yeah so he he was like he was like they were like dancing and stuff and then when like the bass kicked in it was like google horror joke he just like like a fucking fire hydrant it's horrible <laughs> Takes, and and it, I'm reading the article right now. Takes an explosive diarrhea shit as opposed to a diarrhea vomit. I don't know on his nude friend's ass. Yeah, he's like gave his friend a shit enema, and um, yeah, he's he's working really hard to try and play that down. So that's what I was I was watching today while um, also finishing uh, Red Leopard, Black Wolf. That was uh that's been my life lately. fully committed to the episode now we've got to talk about red leopard black wolf yes and i am getting that right this no. time <laughs> no? uh, black leopard red wolf black leopard red black, wolf bl- black leopard red wolf i was like are you what? committing to the bit of no. not getting the name right <laughs> no i'm just an idiot i just suck <laughs> i'm even checking this on the- okay black what definitely is i'm holding the book right now so i i know that i'm correct i'm okay. looking at it <laughs> Um, yeah, I've got the Kindle right here, staring at me with its cold grey eyes. So yeah, okay. So something that you don't see with the uh, with the Kindle version are the blurbs they have on the back. Um, no, I don't actually. I can see the maps, uh, but I can't really read them because it's too small. They open on the back with a big blurb, and I bring this up because this is this is relevant to the book and um, is a good prelude to it. Um, the first blurb is by Neil Gaiman. Okay. Which he, he's known to blurb. He blurbs mostly nowadays. Yeah. 
He's um, like the but... sci-fi and fantasy version of um, what's that guy who always blurbs stuff? Dave Sedaris. But the idea that he's blurbing a book by Marlon James is uh, should for anyone who's familiar with Marlon James prior to this should should be striking. Um, yeah, it's not quite on the same level, he... are they? Up until he announced that this book was going to be a fantasy novel, the idea that Neil Gaiman would blurb a book for him would be startling and surreal. Um, yeah. But uh, he winds up referencing in his lengthy blurb uh, Tolkien, Angela Carter, Gene Wolfe, Robert E. Howard, uh, and then uh, refers to it as dangerous hallucinatory prose. Uh, I mean, it's not really. It's just well, kind of in patois. Well, there there are stretches where... Um, so this rides sort of the line of um, fantasy as we know it and fan, uh, magical realism, which is, if we're honest, a fancy term for saying fantasy that brown people wrote. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the literary Marlon world James pre- has really dipped into magical realism before in his previous stuff. He's, he's known for it. He did... His biggest yeah. influence is Salman Rushdie's book Shame. You know, he's yeah, he's he, he's a magical realist guy. So mag- magical realism itself has kind of um two parallel histories in it. Uh, one is uh, the one that we're presented, which is that it was a bunch of literary writers, um, largely of uh, Latin uh, Latin American origin, but some of African origin as well, and some Middle Eastern origin. Uh, on top of that in the early 20th century, like very early 20th century. And they were writing literary stuff, but coming from their own folk tradition, which had, um, you know, they were trying to incorporate more of their own native elements of like casual references to say um, Yoruba deities or which in Yoruba folk myth would just sort of walk amongst people and do stuff with people. Mm -hmm. And likewise with uh, native American and central American myth where you know like uh huyu coyote the um the coyote trickster god would just you know prance about and do stuff like it wouldn't it wasn't a wholly separated notion of the divine and the mundane uh quite similar to pre-christian europe a european myth as well and they're like oh let's fold that in and so so it's literary stuff but just hemmed with a different kind of culture so it becomes a little bit rude to call it fantasy the other parallel though is these were people who are also reading say like olaf stapleton and um ambrose bierce and other like american science fiction and fantasy writers and going i could do that i just want to write less racistly Mm. um and then did so and so it's always kind of been Sometimes if a brown person makes a fantasy novel, but it doesn't have um, a big monarchy and a white hero and all the villains are different kinds of brown fantasy races and yada, yada, yada. Oh, that's magical realism. That's not fantasy, even if they're casting magic and talking with ghosts and gods all the time. Likewise, if a, uh, if a, uh, a literary book doesn't want to be included in literary fiction, which itself contains plenty of fantastical elements all throughout all the greats of literary fiction. It's not unheard of to have science fictional or fantasy bits. Magical realism becomes a way to push it away from the literary canon. So you can 
technically say that you liked it, but not have to worry about it tainting your uh, your books. Hmm. Yeah. So it's this this odd parallel history of something that's both um, a racialized space for certain excellent work, but also a way to ghettoize work that otherwise would have to be incorporated as the notion that something can be a fantasy novel and literarily satisfactory just seems to be too much for certain people. And mm. they're like, no, no, I need a new word. So I don't have to say that it's a good book or a fantasy book. Yep. And I mean, the interviews I read with Marlon James, he, he definitely knows his shit in terms of fat, in terms of nerd stuff. He yeah. talks about comic books all the time. He's, he's a heavy metal fan. He's into Slayer. He's and he reads, you know, the Tolkien, Robert E. Howard stuff, and he he is a very literary guy as well. Yeah, his um his literary work on um, history of seven killings probably being the least um fantasy tinged of his work. Yeah, absolutely fucking stellar. Yeah, like it was brilliant. It's one of the very very few times the man Booker has absolutely nailed it, and they couldn't ignore that one that year. It was just too damn good. They're, and they're literally everyone one. was buzzing about it. Like, yeah, yeah, they they couldn't do a safe white book that year. They, they I'm sure they really wanted to, but cough, yeah. cough, Wolf Hall. <laughs> but um, yeah, or that Milkman thing that won this year. Um, Ugh. yeah, which I'm, still, I, I, I'm kind of interested in reading just to know, but maybe it's good. Who knows? But I, I hold the same sick fascination. Maybe, maybe we'll cover that at some yeah. point. I could be a like deep, deep Patreon uh, one for the, the real, the real heads. We want to put their money into it. But um, uh, so, let, I mean, let's just talk about what the book is first. That's true. We've kind of, uh, kind of, uh, we've hemmed around it a bit for the horse here. So, okay, synopsis time. So, it's kind of a fantasy version of pre-colonial Africa. A man named Tracker is basically working as a kind of mercenary. Uh, he has various magical abilities. Include, most notably, he can smell anything anywhere. If he's got someone's scent, he can smell the whole continent away. Perfectly pinpoint them. Uh, he's also like invulnerable to metals. He's got a, met- he's got a wolf eye that can see in the dark. And he teams up with a bunch of a ragtag crew of other mercenary monsters and shapeshifters and gods and giants uh and witches and um yeah uh in order to track down a boy who uh has some sort of relevance to the um game of thrones going on in the two kingdoms the the north and the south that are in this like fictionalized Africa, and it gets it gets complicated. It, it's a damn complicated book. In the same way that Game of Thrones is complicated, a lot of characters, a lot of shifting allegiances, whole passages that are just go on forever. They're just lies that you have to just discard later. But yeah, but work really well, uh, and. Yeah, um, a lot of stuff is not explained. There's a little glossary in the front of the book that explains some of the African words, but um, yeah, it, and it's not great to explain itself. 
in but in a really good way and yeah i think the it, it got billed as the african game of thrones i think marlon james when he started writing when, when he was already writing it but he was kind of like talking it up kind of when seven kings came out he he kind of jokingly said i'm writing the african game of thrones yeah i remember the quote coming from him and then being picked up yeah. by other people because I remember it drawing a lot of attention when he himself said, like, yeah, that's a big influence on my uh, on my upcoming novel. Because everyone's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. And I can see it. And there are, there are little hints dropped here and there. There's a Mad yeah, King. There's. It's yeah, not there. not there. Yeah. Tolkien is definitely there. I Tolkien, mean, so even to the point of naming your main character Tracker, which is sort of a very heavy handed nod of the cap to a. Uh, how uh, Aragorn went by the name Strider for yeah. so long and well, was a tracker and a ranger himself. Yeah, and you know the, he refers to their group as a fellowship multiple yeah. times. It's not subtle. He's not trying to hide it. Also, the entire um, literary framing of it being this deeply first-person narrative where it's very clear Tracker is the one telling the story to the point where certain details may or may not be true or and you find out a number of them aren't true and a number of them may be not fantastical when they're presented as fantastical um or vice versa in a way that's um also explicitly like gene wolf book of the new sun stuff with Severin or severin and uh the way that he tells that story like it was a and it's it's one of those things where if you've read that those books, you'll be like, "Oh, you're you're nabbing it from there, and you're twisting it in this like really fantastic direction where um, the fantasy plays out more like uh, uh, my life in the bush of ghosts, where it's this half primitivist, half uh, techno fabulist uh, fan- fantasy Africa." Um, with a liar as a main character and narrator. It's... Yeah. And we should point out that it's the first part of a trilogy. And yeah. instead of going chronologically, he's going to um, <clears throat> highlight two other characters and get their sides of the story. We don't know which characters just yet. I'm going to bet it's uh, Sogolon the Witch and the Leopard. Uh, we're going to the cap- Leopard feels like a... an obvious choice, yeah, because he's absent yeah. for a part of it. I think it, I think it will be Soglon, uh, the witch, moon witch lady as well, because she's just so different from Tracker, and her goals are totally the opposite of his. So I think is, that's a kind of obvious choice, maybe. But who knows? Maybe it, it, a third person we've never heard of before. Yeah, if anything, the fact that they're obvious choices would make them also pretty good ones to be central but non-point-of-view characters yeah, throughout a they, series. Yeah. That way they remain fixated like like a pole star and you can sort of rotate around them Hmm. but uh the book was goddamn great oh yeah it was fucking amazing like it's uh we've talked uh about the book generally it's i just wanted to explicitly say fucking incredible book this is yeah oh my god the best fantasy novel i've read since the vor and Hmm. given that it is near identical to the vore in a lot of manners but written by someone of that background so that it felt a bit um 
a bit more earned and a bit yeah. less um, uh, literarily colonizing in certain ways. Yeah. I don't sort think of. The Vore had much to do with African mythology. It was more. It was like set Chris, in. Yeah. It was set, set in Africa. Yeah, it's set in like a colonized Africa, like a very, yeah. very colonized Africa. But like much more so, like there were white cities in Africa, yeah. as, I, as I recall. But, um, and yeah, it had, it had stuff going on that definitely isn't in um, Red Leopard, Black Leopard. Black Leopard. <sighs> I'm never going to get that right. I've got, Son I've, of a bitch! <laughs> I got like a curse or something. It's he. It's a the the leopard. The black leopard is a character in the fucking book. <laughs> never call him. Okay, he is a he is black and he's a leopard. But you never call him black leopard. That's true. It'd be they kind of redundant to call black people leopard. black in this book. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it is fucking amazing. And I mean, a just on like a. Just on the the same frills you get from any good fantasy book. There's exciting action sequences. There's scary monsters. There's weird stuff going on. There's it folds in a lot of mind bending prose. So if you're more on the um, that's where I think um, hallucinatory I can find it somewhat follow, but I'd err more on calling it like a lightly psychedelic book in the way that it approaches translating into prose the fantasy things that happen like it doesn't feel as um staid as like harry potter or something where they bark out a spell and then a spell happens or like in a bad like american fantasy novel where it's like fireball and then a fireball happens it's um very fluid and natural the integration of what may or may not be magical things. Because there's also plenty of little hints that magic isn't actually real or happening, and it's all perceptive. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely fantastical stuff going on, but there's definitely... The the kind of... Yeah, like you said, the the borders between the magical world and the real world are much less delineated than they are in Harry Potter or something. It, also, it, it feels much like, uh, I guess, another um, fantasy touchstone would be something like the Kingkiller Chronicles, which got a, it got a lot of play in the fantasy world. And they're really, really well written, but their gender politics are fucking awful. Um, yeah, I want to get into that with this one, because <clears throat> I had a few little little things about gender politics and, and general politics. And that, but, uh, but go on. Uh, yeah, and I just, uh, the way that that... Um, like too much happens for you to say that there's no supernatural stuff going on, but the fact that it's presented from a um, deeply unreliable narrator who's more unreliable because they have their own interests. And uh, this book is also presented as him narrating the tale to someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, and in some sections you get, more firm idea of who he's telling the story to and in other times they he deliberately plays it a little bit looser but the idea that he is telling another character in his world events that have happened adds another um complicating bit to um how much of this is real especially since uh marlon james is too smart to, to think that he could get away with not including the conflict of science and magic in a fantasy book. You really can't avoid that, especially in a heavily skeptical time. Like, 
at some point you're going to have to nod to it. But he thankfully nods just enough to muddy the water of what it is that you're reading and not to... He doesn't fixate on it. It doesn't become like, is it real? Is it not real? Like, he just sort of goes like, yeah, no, there's whole cities devoted to and cultures devoted to science in uh, in their world that don't think magic is real and are finding explanations for things. But moving on. And then someone yeah. literally shapeshifts in a way that you're like, I can't, what? And they're like, yeah, no, he totally shapeshifted, though. And you're like, for real? And someone else is like, yeah, no, actually, for real. Yeah, no, he's not making that part up. Yeah, no, he shapeshifted. <laughs> it's like, yep. and you guys think there's science for that? They're like, well, I mean, hopefully there is. Otherwise, <laughs> shapeshifting is real. And I can't do it. And that would make me feel upset. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that part was very, very cool. Both both the part you're talking about and the shapeshifting. There should be more shapeshifters in books in general. Agreed. Uh, but let's, uh, before we go into the politics of it all, where we're gonna we're gonna probably get cancelled. Uh, let's um, let's do some music first. So I want to do one you suggested. Uh, I, I think is it pronounced Fang? Yeah, just Fang, F A N G E. Uh, they're from Rennes in France. They got a really nice looking uh, Bandcamp page. Uh, you wanna you wanna describe these guys? Uh, yeah, I happen to. So again, one of the benefits of being signed up for a million newsletters that all drop on a Friday, because that's New Music Day, the holiest day of the week for music nerds. Um, just happened to hear about their new record this past week, and they only have like four. So I just, after I listened to this new one, tore through the rest of their stuff. And now I own all their stuff on Bandcamp, because it's <laughs> fucking great band. Mm-hmm. Um they are uh, metallic hardcore in the vein of the kind that I like. Uh, <laughs> in that, um, so like hate breed then. Okay. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, they're like uh, the same way that depending on how you come at them, Converge can feel more like a metal band or more like a hardcore band. And it says more about where you came from musically rather than the band. Uh, Fang is very much, they're definitely playing with extreme metal. They're definitely playing with hardcore. And there's enough literal, like, harsh noise and sludge in there that they sort of strike right there in the middle. And so for me, as a, more of a metal guy, I absolutely love what they're doing. The punkness of it makes it feel like it has a kind of energy and political focus to it that a lot of metal doesn't always have um makes it really thrilling but i can easily see someone who's more into hardcore or more into punk grabbing onto these guys and feeling like they're just a really fucking great french hardcore band that happens to have a lot of uh death metal and black metal and sludge ideas tossed in yeah and you also do a bunch of black flag covers so that kind of gives them the the punk credentials right there black flag whips black flag are fucking good except that weird spoken word album that was very that wasn't great. Yeah, that, was that wasn't that. That was a bad idea. Yeah, and but that's or, how you know they're a real one because they put out straight up a weird bad record. That's <laughs> that's a classic move. It takes hmm. balls to have not only a bad record but it's fucking strange. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, it's not like a uh, Celtic Frost, Cold Lake, or something. It's like Cold Lake is good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm fucking saying. Whoa, it. Cold the Lake most, is good. The most blasphemous. 
uh, act you could possibly pull off in metal. One, is good. glam metal is fucking tight. Two, <laughs> Tom G. Warrior made a glam metal record? That's fucking hysterical. Also, the tracks kind of bang. It Whoa. should have been put out under a different name. I 100% agree with that. They, I don't know who thought, like, what record label was like, you know what will move units on this glam metal record? Tying it to Celtic Frost. Makes no sense. Okay, you, you're cancelled. I'm cutting That's all fine. of this. I understand that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so here's, here is Il Reconnacha Lissin. Terrible French. By Fang off their album Punir? Punir? I, so, I think so. The new uh, one. The one with the headless guy on it. Yeah, it's got a headless guy. He's got a skull instead of a dick. He's pulling out his own guts. <clears throat> Metal it's really tight. Yeah. And yeah, so check it out.
You know what? While continuing on this Celtic Frost glam metal tip, you know what record's underrated? Turbo. Turbo is an underrated record. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Turbo? Turbo Lover? That song's amazing. I'm not even kidding. They put out a 30th anniversary version of it, remastered it. Shit sounds fantastic. If you think Turbo is better than Defenders of the Faith, I will kill you. But it is still a fucking tight record. And it's better than Jugulator. That album's fucking bad. Yeah, but it's not as good as, like, a good Judas Priest album. So, you know. I mean, it is a good Judas Priest album. But you're right. It's not It's not Sin After Sin or Sad Wings of Destiny or Sin After Sin. Screaming I love Vengeance. Sin After Sin. Sin After Sin, for instance. That's another good one. Okay. The only the only battle worthwhile in all of metal is uh, 70s priest or 80s priest. That's the only <laughs> conflict that's worth anything. Hmm. That's like in uh, Lord of the Rings where there was just this giant war before everything else. <laughs> but then everything else is just this like, sad echo of this like massive war where like dragons the size of continents were fighting god warriors. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, and everything else is just... Yeah, just an echo of 70s versus 80s priest. Black metal versus death metal? That's just 70s versus 80s priest in mm. different clothing. Yeah. But uh, so back to battles <clears throat> and gods and warriors and dragons? No, there are no dragons in this. There are no dragons. I feel like there are going to be dragons. It feels... I don't. You I don't know. know enough about African mythology. I know, like every, pretty much every culture on Earth has some version of dragons, but uh, I don't know if there's any in Africa. I know there's um, there's a cryptid called uh, Macolia Bembe, which is like a giant. It's just like a brontosaurus. I but don't the- know if there's going to be a dragon based on African mythology. I just want Marlon James to write a dragon really hard, <laughs> and he has a fantasy novel series now so do it man yeah he's, he's got to stick to his he's got to stick to his themes he can't just throw european mythology in there i he, i mean he could if he wanted i don't know if i want it if, if i want it bad enough he could do it <laughs> okay mom james put in a dragon just just a little one <laughs> it you could just be in the back dragon. big big dragon huge epilogue and then a dragon came out it was tight the end <laughs> boom done i'm happy now yeah <laughs> then Rob Halford screamed across the sky in his uh, awesome metal motorbike. He would and be the riding... song Painkiller was playing, and yeah. there was a huge dragon. There. That's exactly actually what all my dreams are. That's that's a perfect replication of my beautiful dreams. Yeah. And uh, speaking of some gay shit, um, there was a lot of gay shit in this. Oh, liked, yeah. This book I, I, is queer as really fuck. gay. Yeah. It was, yeah, and I, that is, a, and before anyone thinks we're being like 15 year olds, where we're using gay to mean bad, or even thinking gay is bad, no, this was, it no. was it, this was very, very good. It was um, a really big breath of fresh air for a genre that, despite fantasy being on paper, this sort of, it should be this unlimited thing, it's often very monarchistic, very white supremacist, very misogynistic, very, and then very cis-normative and heteronormative. And this mm. very much wasn't either cis-normative or heteronormative. No. I mean, as much as it's the African Game of Thrones, it's also the queer Game of Thrones. <clears throat> yeah. I, I'm going to... That's 
you can blurb you can use that as a blurb that's very blurb worthy and it's very it, naturalist with its um with its queer stuff it they nod a bit to it being socially taboo in some of the cultures in the book but none of the characters seem to be racked with shame he doesn't write about it like the act of what they're doing is taboo and so he's able to approach their queer sex with um the same poetic touch that you know straight authors have been able to talk about straight sex sense forever like yeah. it's it's really really gorgeously written uh scenes about dudes jacking each other off and shit <laughs> yeah and Which i mean they, and they, don't even think it's like just fucking there's a really really great love story in here too there's yeah. several in fact yeah, yeah both, no, um, he nails... Tracker and the Leopard and Tracker and uh, a character who turns up, I think, like halfway through, uh, Mossy. He's, um, and, and I mean, I, I don't think it's it's a spoiler to give away that it's like it ends badly for like 99.9% of the people in this book. It's a very, very violent book. You get the vibe, if you don't get the vibe within a cu- the first couple pages, that it's going to end rough forever. Yeah. It, it opens with Tracker believing that he is about to be executed. Hmm. And so he's literally giving yeah. his last testament before his execution. And then things get a little different because, of course, they do because it's a novel. But that does set the tone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The very first sentence is, the boy is dead. And it's a book about <clears throat> finding a boy. You know? it's um, And find out why he dies. And, no, spoilers, yes, he does die. And that's, you know... They're um, not lying about that part. Yeah. However... They do routinely the, show that being dead doesn't make you dead. No. And, you know, it, it still obeys the comic book logic, which of, like, if you see some, like, fall down something or in an explosion, don't assume they're dead. They could very well just come back. And with all the magic floating around everywhere, yeah, anyone can come back. There are zombies, there are vampires. There's a lot of vampires in this book. There were a lot of vampires, and they were fucking sick, by the way. Yeah. They were fucking sick-ass vampires. Yeah, they weren't like they whiny... They were scary. They Twilight were... vampires. They just, like, straight-up eat you, and they're huge. And, and they're... Well, they're just weird. Yeah. They they felt um, uh, almost Lovecraftian in the sense of, like, the outsideness of them. Hmm, yeah. It was really, really powerfully... Um, powerfully imaginative book that was the other thing is that by breaking outside of i that's one of the frustrating things being like loud it's being thrown at something like uh harry potter where people people are allowed to like those books if they want no, no one can tell you not to like a book that's stupid but acting as though what if kids go to school but it's a european magic school is somehow now an imaginative thing is is really really silly like that's a really silly thing to say out loud this in comparison felt wildly imaginative yeah without ever being silly yeah and stuff from other cultures like we're kind of conditioned to find it strange and sometimes silly like the i know tricks the figures in native american mythology like stealing someone's penis and making a boat out of it or something it comes off it to European is that sounds silly, but and but this never feels silly. It always, I mean, there's a mon- There are monsters in this whose like power is they can walk. They walk on the ceiling instead of the floor, and 
you'd you'd think of like okay so if they're chasing you just go outside they can't follow you there and i guess just stay outside all the time but they they're made into like a dangerous threat and they're it like, feels uh, unnerving when they get written about he he's a good enough yeah. prose stylist that he focuses on the thing about them isn't just their physical strength or their immediate threat. It's the way that they threaten the way you understand the world. Exactly. Like, yeah. It's like magic is nightmarish even when it's good because it means you can't rely on anything, including physics or mm, chemistry, yeah. to help you understand and navigate the world. Yeah. There's there's an earlier bit where um, <clears throat> uh, a witch has a kind of like an X Men school out in the woods where she keeps the basically mutant children. Who are um, like albinos or kids with magical powers, and she walks on the ceiling, and it's yeah. You know, it, it if you were to visualize it, it would look kind of silly. But the way it's described, <coughs> is, yeah, really, um, it feels ultra. Am I pronouncing that right? It feels like yeah, a, a, like a, ta- a taboo has been violated by having people walk around on the ceiling, like kids play on the ceiling. Even though that's in, like, what? Like, Mary Poppins does that, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that happens in Mary Poppins. Um, they, yeah, he nails really well. It's sort of the difference between, like, some ho-hum hack mainstream comic and then something like uh, Grant Morrison at his peak, where he's literally playing with the exact same ideas as those people, but the way that you frame it, the way that you use the the prose to shape how you're conveying this image affects a lot, whether there's a sense of menace, whether there's a sense of this is fr- uh, uh, Sheena Mieville is another uh, mm, yeah, pro stylist. He's a good comparison where the fact that what you're encountering is out of the ordinary and you're not supposed to be encountering something out of the ordinary uh, is handled well. Cause mm. he doesn't all fall into that other fantasy trap where you just sort of, where they can get away with literally anything happening because you're like, okay, the rules are out of the window. He somehow, even though the rules are very much out the window, he does a very good job of continuously making you reinvest in the idea of no, they aren't. So that way, when the next thing happens, you're like, oh shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're like constantly um, being bombarded with all these crazy stuff. Then there's a part where the fellowship go to a place called the Darklands and you're, and you're going there, and you're like, oh shit, they're going to the Darklands. Even though, like, 50 pages before, he was getting vampirized by twin monsters in a tree full of corpses. He's he goes in and out of the realm of the dead more than once, and then he goes to what seems like a normal place, and you're like, oh shit, he better watch himself. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, one of the things... That I was thinking of when I was reading this, and it wasn't it wasn't books at all. It was video games. It was uh, stuff like The Witcher, or um, yeah, the, that's the, a good comparison. Yeah, point. Which I, admittedly is a book first, but I've never read them. But uh, no one in no one in the English speaking world has. Don't worry, yeah, they're, they're lying when they say they have. Um, or um, Dragon Age, the Dragon Age series, even Dark Souls in the. Um, like some of the locations seem like very dark souls. There was basically a place I can that's feel just, that that's just like um, <clears throat> Blight Town, and um, I think getting getting Gaiman to blurb this as well, I think, was a deliberate move on their part because I you can't write this kind of fantasy in the twenty first century without 
knowing who Neil Gaiman is and mm-hmm. having read something by Neil Gaiman. It's just yeah. incredibly um, improbable that you would be doing that. Um, yeah, and I think that's the same with video games. I think yeah, I'm going to escape my reputation. Mom James is a gamer. Uh, and for a start, oh, that's has... that's mean. <laughs> <laughs> for a start, he has fast travel. There are fast travel points in this book. That it's true that now I yeah. didn't think of them as that when I was reading it, but I, that's yeah, I was thinking, that's yeah. true. If you look, if you look, he puts a little map in, and it's got all the points connected. That they are fast travel points, just like you get in a game. Also, I'm going to be straight up. If you read fantasy novels and you listen to a lot of doom metal. Because he was explicit. He listened to a lot of doom metal and pretty mm. underground doom metal stuff while he was writing this, too. Um, uh, you, did he you, mention any names? Uh, I don't. Uh, I, I think he did. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, uh, but, yeah, if you cover those two bases, video games are sort of the unspoken third. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. The, yeah. There's a uh, Venn diagram. Video games will always be in the middle of that. Yep, and uh, and weed, uh, but um, but uh, yeah, it's, it. I mean, but it, at the same time, it doesn't feel that pop cultural, you know. And yeah, I've, I've read a lot of people's like reactions on, to it on Twitter, and a lot of people, they may be white people. I'm just guessing based on their pictures. Um, yeah, but a lot of people are having a hard time with this one. Because I don't think it's given them what they thought they were going to get based on the African Game of Thrones thing or just based on fantasy novels in general. I don't think, I think for a start, the prose seems to be too complicated for people. There's a lot of people saying, like, this book is just people saying, like, I saw eight and one cows. And um, yeah, it's the prose has given people some, some thought. And it's. Um, and it seems that people are feeling it's too violent. And I wanted to... And not just randos on Twitter, too. It's There's a, a Guardian article about this book that basically calls it a piece of like pop cultural trash, compares it to like Tarantino and comic books, which, you know, being compared to Tarantino is bad, but comic books are great. And, um, yeah, it compares it negatively to, like... Obviously, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, and stuff. It's, uh, yeah, he calls it violent and cliched. I mean, for, for some, it's not cliched at all. It's like. Yeah, I don't know for, how anyone could say that. <laughs> like, violent, obviously, everything <clears throat> Marlon James has done has been incredibly violent and very brutally violent. There's like, no one is spared. Kids, women, ev- everyone dies horribly in this book. And the dude, the dude fucking grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, which is one of the most violent cities in the world. So yeah, like he's, his he's parents her- were and, police detectives. You yeah. Know? He grew up as a, a black man in Kingston. Like he's earned the right yeah. to discuss violence. And when you a run black, into literary a black gay critics, man too. You know, exactly. He's... In Jamaica, which is a very conservative country as well. Yeah, when you then, run into, when you run into people who are like, oh, I'm a critic and I think we need to not talk about violence anymore because it's like, what kind of fucking world do you live in or what life did you have where you think that you, not discussing violence is somehow an option? Like, I don't, I don't yeah. wrap, I can't wrap my it head around be, that. With the, like, big critics, the, like, James Woods and uh, um, Michiku 
Kinanari. Like, there seems to be a, a taboo against violence, as like it's somehow not serious. If you're writing about murders or crime <coughs> or war, then you're doing so just because violence is titillating and showing it is like a cheap thrill for kids. Yeah, and, even um, though something like crime is. And, and th- that I think touches on how literary critics of a certain bent can sometimes be isolationist in a really reactionary way because something like crime is a direct example of the kinds of broader thematic concepts of uh, violation and dissolution that, uh, that literary fiction deals with. And the idea of there being an actual applicable example of these things somehow that strikes them as taboo. Mm, yeah along the same lines of like knowing a queer person and letting them speak uh doesn't feel as good as letting jonathan franzen speak for them <laughs> yeah because he's objective he can be objective about it it's true but, he yeah. he can write some really god-awful sex scenes as opposed <laughs> to people who've actually had sex who write about it like they've had sex mm. and know what sex is like because they've had it that's right Jonathan Franzen, you're a virgin. He doesn't listen to podcasts, so this isn't going to reach him. You're a virgin, Jonathan Franzen. And I want to be clear to everyone else, it's fine to be a virgin. Jonathan Franzen, though, I'm shaming him. Mm, True. And also, birds are rubbish. Not a single good one. Wish they're all dead. Fuck a bird. I'd kill a bird right now if there was a bird here. It's also for someone who... So, if you read interviews of Marlon James, you can tell uh, he's a real one, because... One, there's no interview with him where he's not raving about other people's work. And mm, two, yeah. there's not any interview with him where he's not raving about, like, fucking ten different people's work. Yeah, like, he's, he's, he's a, constantly... A he And he reads super wide. One, it's mm. obvious from reading his prose. But two, the way that, um, like, in a recent interview, he jumped around from talking about James Joyce, who, of course, he loves, because if you write books you like james joyce that's sort of like it's a cliche because it's true yeah um talked about ursula k Le Guin. talked about sheena mieville he talked about how much he loved john borman's film excalibur which is the best fantasy film ever made um did he yes did a soundtrack for that or am i thinking of saying a tangerine dream or something i think it was tangerine dream um yeah uh but yeah just like leaps around um all these different, like he loves Alan Moore, which mm, yeah, absolutely makes sense. He's about Alan Moore uh, likes him too. I imagine Alan Moore does like him because mm. Alan Moore, as much as he can be cantankerous, he does actually have great taste in books. <clears throat> um, yeah. But yeah, that's it. That that makes the idea of him his prose being called. Uh, like stereotypical or something very very strange because like for someone who he if you know his reference points they're not hard to find especially in black leopard red wolf but there's so many of them that i don't know how you could how you could safely call a kaleidoscope of influences stereotypical that that doesn't make sense to me yeah, I, I haven't even touched on the fact that a, a good stretcher's novel is a detective story. Yeah. And Tracker is a very, is it straight up Stam Spade. He's a hard-drinking, hard-loving, hard-done-by-man 
who works alone. There's literally a hooker with a heart of gold in here. He has uh, the good dude, but Mar- Marlon James has the good 21st century um, writer slash literary critic uh, politic that there isn't a meaningful differentiation between high and low literature. They're just different modes of literature. And mm. you can write a good or a bad book in any of those modes. Like you can write a great gumshoe detective novel and that's just as good as a great literary fiction novel and a bad literary fiction novel is just as bad as a bad gumshoe detective novel Mm. and turning your nose up at either is a different kind of classism yeah um and it's very apparent in the way that he writes like there's you can rattle off um a bunch of different literary writers as he's definitely riffing off of just as much as like you get some great, uh, is it Chandler? Raymond Chandler, who's the mm-hmm. detective novelist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mix him up with Raymond Carver because their names are almost the fucking same. Mm. But one writes some horse shit about she, the waitress in her cigarette or whatever, and I don't, I don't care for that. And then the other one writes shit about he shot a dude in the alley, and I'm like, hell yeah! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Raymond Chandler is the better of the literary Raymonds. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, like a very good part of his detective story. There's tons of reference, little bits that are, like I said earlier, there's like an X Men school in this. Yeah, admittedly an, an African one. But and then it's, they uh, still they the do the decent. I, I was worried about the politics of that scene for a bit because it felt ableist the way that it was being presented. But then he goes out of his way to have the witch skewer uh tracker's perspective of it by saying basically like none of these kids are weird they're just they're born with disabilities and so their parents would otherwise have them killed because of bad cultural standards but i just don't kill them i have people bring them to me and i just raise them and it's an orphanage and they can get they can leave when they want Hmm. yeah Yeah, and he's like wait what do you mean they don't have powers and she's like, yeah, no, he just has long legs. I don't, that's yeah. not, what? <laughs> yeah, it's it's more woke than X-Men, which is the stereotypically woke comic book franchise. Uh, but It yeah. does lead, and we hinted at this a little bit before, it does lead uncomfortably to some of the lacking gender politics as they show up in the book. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, the Guardian article it did highlight that there's not a lot of women in this book. I, I don't think it would pass the Bechdel test, maybe, but uh, who knows? But um, not that that really matters because it's just one person's opinion on stuff. It's very arbitrary and tons of stuff that's amazing doesn't pass it, like you know, Ulysses. Uh, but <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, the the, the 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 female roles are generally. Uh, witches or corpses and um yeah i i think i'm gonna guess and it is just a guess that um the next book in the series will be from a female perspective and the women's roles will be much more fleshed out because they they do it is like from the perspective of a guy who is uh despite being uh queer is also very much a man's man you know he's he's a a two-fisted detective and he is also called out for that. 
in yeah. the book quite often. And it's something that, to be fair, it's a pretty common trick for less woke than they ought to be men. Um, and I've fallen prey to this myself or fallen prey to my own stupidity in this manner myself, I should say, in that uh, instead of fixing a problem, you just nod to the fact that you have it. Mm, yeah. And you think that's, um, that's done. You know, but or, or he, writing strong women characters who who have superpowers, and yeah. thinking that that's enough, and you've written a feminist novel now. And then Which, you also include lingering scenes on their on their feetsies, <laughs> Joss. Yeah. Um, oh, does Joss Whedon yeah. do that? I thought you talked about Tarantino. I thought he's the foot guy. Oh, Joss Whedon's also a foot guy. Oh wow! I thought he was they're just both, generally gross, but yeah, wow. they're both they're both foot foot people. Yeah. Um, oh. All foot people are gross. I'm just going to say that. That's just how I feel. Well, that's can't, can't challenge but, that. Okay, you've already been cancelled, so you may as well go down in flames. That's true. I'm just I'm going to burn it all down, baby. Yeah. But um, a, a second book featuring stronger uh, women's roles in that perspective um, would buy back a lot of uh, some of the critiques that I have here. Some of the others, though tend towards and again it's all framed through tracker's mouth so um a bit of a grain has to be taken with that but the way that he talks about the um so spoiler the main character is not circumcised and you're made very well aware of that (laughs) yeah it comes up a lot it comes up quite a bit and you think at a certain point that they're going to stop bringing it up and then it comes up again later um, and then it comes up a third time after that. And you're like, wow, he really wanted me to know that this dude's cock is not cut. Mm. Not cut. So for those uh, editing Cutopedia, um, Tracker is going to have to go into the uncut uh, category. Wait, is that a thing? Tell me that's not a thing. I got its name wrong, but it is a thing. And they hypothesize about which characters in popular fiction are cut or not cut. And they'll also pour over photos of famous people to try to determine, based on the outline of their dick in their pants, whether they're cut. That's real. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't uh, make jokes online. This is all <laughs> This is all dark, dark secrets that I've unearthed. Oh, God. Uh, okay, Batman, uncut. <clears throat> Superman can't be cut because, you know, he's Superman. Yeah. Uh, Batman yeah. might be cut, though, because they sometimes hint that he has Jewish ancestry. Oh, yeah, they do. But didn't, didn't like his... We, we saw his dick, though, in that one from, like, last year where we saw Batman's That's dick. true, but we only saw it in Outline, and I don't know uh, how much of that... T- I think it was uncut in the Outline, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, I, I, I'm saying Batman uncut. Yeah. And um, Joker cut. And um, Joker's definitely cut. Well, no, Joker, I think, because he's the Joker, it's going to be either really fucked up or it like you're going to see it and it's cut and the next time you see it it's not cut and you're like i what and he's like <laughs> i'm not cut and you're like what let me tell you how i got these scars <laughs> down there i'm talking downtown <laughs> um uh, also he's a volcell and it's true. Uh, yeah it gives uh, him more chaos energy because he's does. not expending it yeah uh, rick from mick and morty cut um also a romantic demisexual but um yeah uh, so was there anything else that wasn't good about this apart from the the cut and uncut bit well the well it was more that when when he discusses in the terms of the book uh 
being circumcised being versus not being circumcised, it relays a kind of um, cisnormative uh, relation to the body uh, and gender that obviously is culturally rooted in certain ways, but also felt um, it felt like it hovered a little bit too close to a transphobic or a misogynistic sentiment about um, male versus female bodies that mm. uh, I, I know it, it's clear what he's going for with it. And I don't think the intent is for it to read as Marlon James making a statement about contemporary uh, politics of the body and sexuality and gender. But no, he's not it, tough. But it, it lingered a little bit close to that. And I was like, I, uh, uh, like, I, I see what you're doing. Just like less, just less, <laughs> please. Um, but again, having, having a, di- a book come from a perspective that skewers this one a bit and skewers it a bit th- uh, thoroughly as well would uh, do well to counter that. And he has thankfully yeah. lots of room to, to approach that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, one of my only criticisms is actually kind of that it wasn't enough like Game of Thrones. Because Game of Thrones, for all its flaws, and there are many, one good thing about it is it keeps switching perspective between chapters, that brings in a lot of different perspectives. Uh, they're not particularly well-written ones. They're not very distinct, whether it's like Arya or John or whatever. But um, that that's a, a good way to handle like having a massive cast of characters that are across a continent and uh, with this being like all in Tracker's head and the stories that people tell him, which he could have like, embellished upon or cut stuff from, like the the st- uh, stuff like what's happening politically with the kings of the north and south going to war and stuff, it doesn't really come through because he's like too much on the edge. Like it doesn't feel like there's a stake. The political stakes are there, which you get in Game of Thrones because you like. You know, you see peasants being slaughtered by, um, uh, like armies and stuff. You see, like, you and you're like in the uh, the what's it called, the Red Keep or wherever, when they're making the, the big, big decisions, and you get stuff like Cersei or uh, perspective and stuff. So that kind of works with something that has as big a scope as Game of Thrones, and I think this has as big a scope of, of it going on in the background, but. We don't. We never get to see any of it because it's all tracker, tracker, tracker. You know. Um, I didn't have an issue with that personally. If anything, I felt that he would walk over and nod, like Marlon James would have the characters walk over and sort of nod at. And here's a thing that a fantasy novel would typically get into, but I don't really care to, and would just. <laughs> have it walk on. It also wound up making the story feel a bit more like it lived in a world where, and this is something that, uh, so um, one of the benefits of both of us being writers outside of doing stuff like this is if you've ever tried to write a sci-fi or a fantasy novel, one of the biggest traps is world building because mm. you don't realize until you're writing one, how much of, uh, nonfiction or even just realist fiction is also predicated on world building that people just happen to know already. Yeah. Like I don't have to explain, explain what a prime minister is or a president or a car 
or things like that. I can just invoke these things and they're done. Um, but if I want to have a fantasy version of it, I have to explain that. Or if I want to have a non, an inexplicably non-fantasy version of a car in an otherwise fantasy world, I kind of have to bridge that somehow or find a way to artfully not bridge it. So it feels evocative and satisfying that I'm not explaining it rather than do. And there's a lot of, a lot of tricks that fall into that. You could talk forever about like, when are you supposed to give the world building information? When are you supposed to imply it? When are you supposed to not imply it whatsoever? You just sort of put it in there and half the fun is people going, okay, I guess that's part of the world. Um, and I think the fact that you could easily imagine the world that this was taking place in, but not have all the details for it felt more close to me to how a good literary novel, especially like a foreign one will nod towards foreign politics. And I won't know what those politics are because I'm not say Polish and I don't happen to know like the politics of 1920s Poland off the top of my head. But I'm reading it and I go, oh, I get a sense of things. They're nodding to them and I don't know the details, but I don't need to know the details. I know enough for the story to work. And I know that there is something behind there. Um, I do agree that he offers himself a lot of room that he can embellish on in either short fiction or another book. But I actually wasn't turned off by lacking some of that information. Because it also, for me, hemmed in the fact that Tracker doesn't care about that. Tracker, again, yeah. and this is, again, where it felt a lot like The Witcher. Um, <laughs> the minute someone starts talking politics, he's like, wait, are you paying me for this conversation? And the guy's like, no, and he just leaves. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't care then. It's <laughs> like, but the state of the world could. He's like, if you're not paying me, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a paragraph at the end that I think kind of... And I was going to talk about, like, what is this book about, about, you know, what is the big picture idea of this book? And I think it's this passage towards the end. And it's like two pages from the end, but there's no spoilers in it. Um, <clears throat> maybe this w was how all stories end. The ones with true women and men, true bodies fallen into wounded and death, and with real blood spilled. And maybe this is why the great stories we told are so different. Because we tell stories to live, and that sort of story needs a purpose. So that sort of story must be a lie. Because at the end of a true story, there's nothing but waste. I like I like that waste idea. It reminds me kind of like a George Bataille and his ideas yeah. of violence as just like perverse and almost like excremental. Like you're turning someone into shit by killing them. Um, that comes up in the, there's a really good book that hardly anyone's read called um, After Auschwitz, uh, Auschwitz by uh, Rabbi Richard Rubenstein that talks about shit and the Holocaust. And there's, a, there's apparently, there's a lot, and European witchcraft. Like those two, three things have a lot to do with each other. And um, Sounds like a heavy book. Oh, it's heavy as fuck, yeah. This is like written by a rabbi in like the 1950s or 60s and it's yeah it's heavy as fuck but it's it's brilliant yeah but um yeah it, it, i think if you want to sum up like a big picture idea of the book then it's a it's about violent it's it's obviously about violence and it's obviously 
about the wastefulness of it and just the it's not in the same way of like saying game of thrones the big picture idea is power corrupts power corrupts absolutely it's bad that there are kings because then they can make armies and then the armies can fight and everyone dies as much as we can knock what Game of Thrones evolved into, the initial premise was at least that George R. R. Martin felt disgusted by how uh, fantasy novels seem to romanticize both the Middle Ages and monarchy in general and uh, elide how racist and misogynistic and hyper-violent they were and how mm. kings and queens were often bred from incest that was forced upon them. And so the whole notion of Game of Thrones was him going, I'm going to write a book though it looks like medieval Europe and people are going to go, what the fuck? Um, but <laughs> yeah. then people liked it. Hmm, yeah. People got the entirely wrong message. It was kind of like Scarface or um, Wall Street yeah. or whatever. But I think with this one, it goes, it kind of does that even further. It just makes every act of violence just that much worse. And kind of, it feels like, like contemporary Africa. With, I know it's a very like Eurocentric view of it because we only get contemporary Africa through the news. But every time we hear about Africa, it's uh, a bomb has gone off in a marketplace, a slaughter of school children by Janjaweed militias. We hear about like people getting their hands cut off because they voted and stuff. You know, we we hear constant violence, massacres, death, and. Marlon James isn't African, he's Jamaican. He's mostly grew up in you know, Jamaica and then New York. And his his Africa is very yes, it's like constant pointless waste of people's lives. And I'm I'm sure someone maybe from Africa I'd like to see someone from Africa think about this book, because I'm not equipped to do that at all. Like I agree. See, yeah. I'd like to see someone I I don't it's, you know, it's a massive continent. It's it's maps of the world uh, purposely downplay its size. Um, it's and there's a lot of mythologies there and a, a lot of stuff going on. So, yeah, I'd really like to see an African take on this. It felt very much like his image of Africa was more his image of Jamaica filtered through hmm. Africa. Yeah. Like, it's it's very much a post-diasporic novel, to get into more fancy academic terms. Um, I don't think if he were African, he would have written a novel like this. I think something like, uh, again, like The Palm Wine Drunkard or My Life in the Bush of Ghosts fits closer to what a purely African f- fantasy would look like. Because that was written by a black African man in a uh, half-magical realist style, half uh, like perverted realism. I don't, I don't know another word for it. This felt like even his notion of waste and violence and a bunch of people struggling wrongheadedly for decent reasons, but in indecent manners felt feels like the same kinds of ruminations that he had in his earlier work about um, crime in Jamaica and how it affects the lives of people there and how you just sort of you get wrapped up in it, even if you don't want to get wrapped up in it, because that's all that's around you. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's another there's a line just after um, the bit that you pulled um, uh, where he says, 
but all I wanted to do was walk, not to anything, not from anything, just away or not to anything. I can enunciate that better. Mm. Um, and I think that also, um, it, one, it captures the arc of the book in general, like the entire book. Um, but also it, uh, thematically, um, covers it of, in the wake of that violence, what do you do? And the answer that the book proposes, at least, is that you depart it. And then the question goes, well, where do you depart it for? And what happens And when, when you leave? Where do you go? What happens if you find more violence there? And so it gives sort of the brokenhearted answer of violence and violence again. When oh, yeah. you find violence, you depart. So you're breaking up a tiny bit there. Maybe oh, just uh, that saying, one again. Yeah, that uh, what do you do when you find violence? You depart it. Where do you go? Anywhere else. What uh, What will you find there? More violence. What hmm. do you do then? Depart again. Yeah, and um, Tracker keeps doing that. His whole life is just like, he finds an instance of violence, he goes somewhere else, he gets betrayed, or he, his past catches up with him. It's it's like a like a Western in that regard, or like a samurai movie. Yeah. It's like a Lone Wolf um, and Cub or um, Samurai Executioner or it, Sergio Leone. It's, uh, it's it pretty evocative. A lot on the, it sits a lot in the existential um, alienation and sorrow of that, of there not being a place for safety. And so the pursuit of safety, even in an existential sense, doesn't make sense fleeing terror makes sense in a certain way but finding safety doesn't there's a lot of thematic union with him and cormac mccarthy in that way too Mm, yeah that it makes sense to become reactionary against the violence of the world but any kind of hope that you can resolve it is an admirable but a foolish um and he doesn't he doesn't carry that to um politically ignoble ends like uh, Cormac McCarthy does mm-hmm. um he instead just sort of lets it linger on the sting of that which mm-hmm. is to be fair ev- even for us um idealistic and even utopian leftists it's a serious problem to contend with because if we're honest do I ever think there's going to be a world without gendered violence or without class violence or without racial violence? And to be honest, I don't, I think there should be, but I don't actually think we're ever going to make these things go away. And so what do you do then if you don't think that it's actually gonna go away? And it's like, well, you just keep fighting it Hmm. and you just sort of accept that it's a Sisyphean battle. Yeah, because the other option is you don't fight it, (laughs) and that sucks. You join it. You you enjoy the whole thing, like the the vampires in this do, or the judge in um, Blood Meridian does. Yeah, you just yeah. So um, yeah, I I think this is one we could probably go on for like another four hours on because it's just yeah, it's. It is a huge book in every sense of the word, it, both in size and thematically. It's just, you can go on forever on this one. It's a really and, deeply mature book. Like, children have hope, punk. Adults have something like this. Yeah, exactly. That's, that'll be another good pull quote for the, uh, for the cover of the next one. 
Um, but, <laughs> yeah, and I'm really, really awaiting the next one. Um, I think I, I prefer it to the Vore. I, I like the Vore, but uh, I think it was a bit... It seemed almost whimsical in places. That's probably the wrong for it. But um, th- yeah, this seemed really, really... For a 600-page book, it seemed really tight. It seemed really, like, just laser-focused on a massive continent with a huge mythology. And, yeah. So, yeah, 10 out of 10. Go and fucking buy it. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah this I mean, is uh, an early contender for best book of the year for me. Um, this is one of the best fantasy novels i've read in fucking ages yeah, like like this the vor and maybe jonathan strange and mr norrell yeah it's the last 30 years of fantasy uh they're all huge books but uh i mean yeah, i could chuck some more names onto that list but yeah no those are yeah this um is the vor is probably the last one that i read that literally made me go like holy fucking shit that was a great book Hmm. And that yeah. was what eight years ago now, something so. like that. It feels more recent, but I, I think it was. I think, I think it was I, like early 2010s. Yeah, I think I like only picked up like paperback because I saw Alan Moore blurbing it on the cover, and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell was like early 2000s. Yeah, that and, was a long time ago. I was in high school when that one came out. Yeah, that was yeah. I was a kid, and I heard about it like five years later. Same. Has board. she ever written anything else, or just no, that one? Not that one. Nothing before. Nothing after. All right, well, I mean, hole-in-one, right? Yeah. Why Why try and repeat yourself on that one? You've made you've written the perfect book. So, yeah. Uh, and a mediocre TV series. It was not great. It was on It was on the BBC. It looked like garbage, like all BBC stuff does. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, absolutely go and buy this. You, you, it's worth 600 pages of, of reading. And however much 600 pages costs. I bought it on Kindle, so it costs nothing. Um, but, yeah, so in show news, we're going to have a Patreon probably by the time you, you're hearing this. We've got a first Patreon-exclusive episode. It's us talking to a poet <coughs> named Rax King. At uh, Rax King is dead on Twitter. Um, she's awesome. Her book yeah. is awesome. It's called The People's Fucking Elbow. Incredible book. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've got a real long uh, stint of positivity. We need to we need to break this. I'm, I'm hoping that the new Ian McEwen that's coming soon, and yeah, that's going to break up all the positivity, like really there, well. There is a non-zero chance that that's going to make us real upset because that guy has gone off the deep end of being a shit human and bad writer yeah and now he's doing sci-fi so yeah oh jesus christ it's about robots are they human are they robots yeah it's i'm yeah, gonna he's... fucking oh my god oh my god i'm so happy this is gonna be so <laughs> shitty gareth yeah. it's gonna be so shitty i know it's gonna be the worst i'm gonna love how bad uh, his book is gonna be i'm I'm going to have to lie horribly to the uh, press people to get a copy of that. But, um, yeah, it's go- it's going to be terrible. I'm going to love it. His brain is just so wrong. He's got a terrible brain now. His brain's filled with holes now. Yeah, brain worms. He's gone very soft brain. Yeah. 
I, and I'm sure I'm sure as much as like um, the early twenty first century has broken him. I'm sure Trump has broken him so bad. But Do you think the, he likes Trump? No, I think he's I think he's basically like a never Trumper. Ah, I think he's okay, like, a, that, like a Tory never Trumper. Like a well, there's probably like four of them in all of the UK, and all of them write for like the like New Statesman or something. And there's Ian McEwan. But um, yeah, I, I bet he's he's just repulsed by Trump on like a visceral level, even though he kind of agrees with him on like policy. Yeah, he's like he's not um, he's not fancy British racisty enough. Like no. when Europeans talk about how America's uh, racist, even though Europe is uh, just as racist and invented slavery. Hmm, yeah. And um, oh, and there's a nice hint about uh, a prophecy about slavery at the end of um, at the end of this, which hints for future stuff in um, uh, Red Leopard, Black Wolf. So did I get it right that time? Uh, no, you said Red Leopard, Black Wolf. And it's that's Black wrong. Leopard, Red Wolf. Ah, fucking, I, I, I really hoped at the very end I'd get to, I get to get it right. No, not even, not even when you love the book and have read it. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, let's 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 play out with some um, avant-garde, noisy black metal. So, that's always good. It is. It's the best kind because you, you don't have to fuck around with pretending you're Dark Throne in 1992. You can just make a hell of a lot of noise. So if you've listened to the show before, you'll know I have a huge boner for Sentient Ruin Laboratories out of Oakland, California. Uh, virtually everything they've put out has been incredible. It's various different kinds of incredible, but they're willing to really go there when it comes to noise. And um, uh, Stuka Hexen are kind of one of their premier bands. They're a little more high profile than some of the more obscure stuff on there. But they've got a new album out, and it's called, I think it's just called Stuka Hexen. So this is like their defining statement of an album. And it's coming out on March 29th through Sentient Ruin. There's only one track that's been uploaded at the moment. It's called Descent. It's the first song on the album. Um, depending on how good your speakers are or headphones, it's going to sound like you're just in a like a wind chamber, is that what it's called? Like a wind tunnel. It's going to sound like a wind tunnel with someone screaming outside of it. Maybe they're screaming to like get out of the wind tunnel. What are you doing in there? But listen, listen well on a on a good pair of speakers, and you'll find hidden depths to it. It's it's got a, it's got a lot of depth to it. You'll think it's crazy violence and noise, but just like Black Leopard, Red Wolf, nailed it like a nailer. Um. It has a lot of depth. So, yeah, this is a Stuka Hexen with Descent. And go the fuck outside your door right now and buy Black Leopard Red Wolf. Buy it immediately, or I'll beat the shit out of you. And I'm yeah. weak, so that'll take a while. Yeah, it'll be awful. I'm, I've got, like, virtually no blood. I've got real iron deficiency. My blows will feel like someone's flowing like a meringue at you yeah but and um yeah so it'll, it'll be a more sad than violent death you'll, you'll get so death. depressed that you'll die yeah so yeah go go buy this great book and here's stupid hexen <laughs> 